Here we go. April 27, 2014, lecture discussion number 153 on the Book of Romans. So this is the 153 fish portion of the, of the Book of Romans. That's an inside joke. You'll have to see the Book of John for why 153 fish are important. Uh, John has very good reasons for that. But anyway, uh, here we are at Romans 9. That's where we're at right now, trying to figure out what Romans 9 is all about. Because Romans 9 is pretty difficult but for people, and needlessly so, but it is and nonetheless. Why is God in Romans 9 quoting uh, Malachi 1.3? He does it in Romans 9.12. Uh, the Holy Spirit through Paul uh, writes this verse or gives this verse to the Romans. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And that causes uh, great difficulty for people. And it's in concert, or it's alongside of, if you will, uh, Romans 9.21. So I have 9.12 through 14, essentially, and Romans 9.21 through 24 uh, becomes a, a little controversial for people. And we're, we're beginning to work our way through it to show you that it's really not what you are mostly taught. God says this in 921 of Romans, does not the potter, and he is the potter, does not the potter have power over the clay? Who's the clay? We're the clay. Does not the potter have power over the clay uh, from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? And people read that and they think, what? Immediately, you've been here for the last few weeks, you know that they immediately conclude without reading the context or paying attention to what Paul says in 9.1, where he's talking about his beloved nation of Israel, how he's grieving for the nation of Israel and its failure to serve God correctly. People ignore that and they say that that is about individual salvation. And that is not the context and that is not the meaning of those verses. So, and that's especially the case if you look at Romans 9.14, because Paul anticipating, the Holy Spirit through Paul anticipating that people would say that God hates and God creates for dishonor. And so he creates some to never be saved and he creates others that he condemns because he just has chosen uh, to, to dislike them. And they make God this capricious, evil person. And then, of course, naturally, they extrapolate that and they begin immediately to say that, that there is uh, evil in God. And Paul asks that question immediately after he discusses 9, 12 through 14. Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. What's that mean? Paul says this. Is there evil? Does that mean, is there evil with God? Certainly not. So if you immediately conclude when he says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, that God is somehow evil, you're what? Wrong. He makes it as clear as it can be. Certainly not. We've got to recognize that God is the author of evil. The source of evil cannot, it cannot be concluded it is not true specifically in Romans 9, and it's certainly not being taught in Romans 9, and for that matter, anywhere else in the Bible. The opposite is being taught in the Bible. God is good and always good, pure good. There is no evil in God, period. That's what the Bible teaches. And that is why Romans 9.14 is so powerful to know. Because it takes away that argument that Romans 9 is somehow about God being the source of evil. You can get rid of that and it ends the discussion, or it should. 
as to whether God is responsible for sin in any way. And he's not. So what's the obvious question? When you have finally figured out that God is not the source of sin or responsible for sin, is is not the agent of sin, is not the author of sin, then what's the obvious question now? Who is? Where did it come from? Who is responsible? Why? And I would hope, as I said, that 914 of Romans ends the discussion, but as you know, it doesn't end the discussion. Hence, uh, Chronister's Law number 24, which has as a companion Chronister's Law number 25. But Chronister's Law number 24 says this, People love being wrong and will seldom relent from being willfully wrong irrespective of overwhelming evidence that nullifies their willfully wrong position. In my career, as short as it has been, less than, oh my goodness, it's been almost 20 years now, over 20 years of doing these kinds of lectures, I have come up with people that it didn't matter. The truth didn't matter. The evidence didn't matter. Nothing matters. They had a benefit from the view that they're holding and there's nothing I could do to change them from that because it meant they would give up their benefit. And that is Chronister's Law number 25, the companion to Chronister's Law 24. 25 says this, people will willfully steadfast, I'm sorry, people will remain steadfast in being wrong as long as it remains financially advantageous to do so. And those two are together. Chronister's Law number 25 is particularly applicable uh, to politics, journalism, academic, academia, religious institutions, and Little League. And thus the familiar adage, you know, the only thing worse than uh, church politics is Little League politics. Once you know those truths, you'll go through life a lot easier. Anyway, we found ourselves at Genesis 25, 29 through 24, and this is Jacob and Esau. It is a uh, I don't know how to say it, it's astonishing, ridiculously complicated, Jacob and Esau. Whenever you run across Jacob and Esau, you will not understand what is being said in that verse, and especially through Romans 9, unless you have mastered Jacob and Esau. So that's where we ended up, Genesis 25. Uh, we'll probably back up into the 20s, but 29 through 34 for specific reasons. That's the meeting between Jacob and Esau, and it is uh, deeply mysterious, this meeting they have. It is very complex. You have probably heard it thousands of times, and you think it is simple. Please don't do that. It is beyond uh, difficult to understand. The Bible is not simple it is layered, and when you begin to see the layers that is it Jacob and Esau, I have read uh, people that devoted their lives to just Jacob and some who have je- devoted themselves to just Esau, and they have written volumes. So let me read this to you. Uh, I'll back up again a little bit, I think, um, so that you see all of it eventually. Maybe I'll just read this part and back up here in a minute. Here we are, verse 29. Now Jacob cooked a stew. And Esau came in from the field. So what's the obvious questions right off the bat? Why is Jacob cooking a stew? Where was Esau? Did Jacob know that Esau was coming? Was Jacob prepared for it? Who is the witness to this? How did they hear about it? 
Now, Jacob cooked the stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. Esau is weary. Why? And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with some of that red stew. And stew is not in the... uh, it's implied in the in the verse, but it's not in there actually. It's in italics. For I am weary. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Edom has a relationship to red. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright. I'll give you the stew if you sell me your birthright. Now, immediately we have a problem. What do we know about Esau? You guys have read the story. You all went to the Sunday school, and every time you gave the right answer, they got, gave you a Skittle, right? You've all done that. We give out Reese's peanut butter cups downstairs so that all your kids will go home appropriately behaving. I, I can prove to you that I steal those Reese's peanut butter chips. I have them in my coat pocket right now, and I'm watching Dave. Because he knows they're there. The point is, what's the problem? You've seen all of this in your Sunday school class. And Jacob says to him, sell me your birthright as of this day. What do you know about Esau? What has the Bible told you about Esau at this point? Who is he? He is a formidable man. He is a... a very violent, destructive, killing machine. That's what he is. He is legendary in Scripture for his ability to kill. And he's hungry. And he wants stew. And who's between him and the stew? Yeah. Who is no physical match for him. So why doesn't the story say, next, Esau cuts Jacob into little pieces and eats all the stew and leaves. It doesn't. Jacob thinks it's absolutely appropriate to say, I'm not going to give you any food unless you sell me your birthright. That doesn't seem to make sense. I'll continue reading. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. This day. Why this day? Why not put it off a month? Or a year. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. Wow. What's the question now? I'm about to die. Is he wounded? Is that why he doesn't attack? So what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. It's very important, this day. So he swore to him. Esau swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Okay? That's the, and at first glance, this is an inexplicable, seemingly out of context, unconnected to the previous passage. Uh, I just gotta say it again. Jacob, Esau, very difficult to understand correctly. Do not think that you understand it. Chances are you don't. But anyway, it seems unconnected to the previous uh, passages and the subsequent passages, but it's not. It makes perfect sense. It's in the right order, and it absolutely connects both behind it and in front of it. 
And the order is so important here. When you try to solve Genesis 25, 29 through 34, the order is the key. Try to notice the order of things when you're reading the Bible. Why is this here? And then why does this come next? And why did this come before? And what comes after these? How long does this story go on in the Bible? Because it goes on a long time, Jacob and Esau. And it's all over the place. It's in Malachi. Obviously, it's in Romans. Romans quoting Malachi. Why does Malachi bring it up? Why does Paul bring it up? This very, very lengthy event, this meeting, this cause and effect element that is in the story of Jacob and Esau. Within the order is astonishing truth. So let's back up a little bit to verse 21. So that's what happens That event, this meeting between these two brothers happens, and this is what causes it. Now, Isaac pleaded with with the Lord for his wife, because his wife was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together with her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So she is told that you're going to have twins, and they're they're going to struggle with each other by God. Chances are what? Yeah, that's what's going to happen since he's omniscient outside of time and the creator of all things. He's got some advantages. But ask the obvious question. What is this about? Why are they going to struggle? So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red. Eat them. First came out, eat them. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. Esau, red, hairy. How attractive you think this guy was. Afterwards, his brother came out and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Heel has something to do with Jacob. Red has something to do with Esau. So far, so good. So the boys grew. Uh, let me finish. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter. But Jacob was a complete man. Some of your Bibles might say mild. The word is literally complete. One is a cunning hunter. The other is a complete man. Dwelling in tents. And Isaac... Loved Esau because he ate of game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So that is what causes the meeting that we just had. So I went out of order. I did the second first and the first second, but I want you to understand. Right off the bat, we learned something pretty cool. Rebekah is one of the women in the Bible that is barren, described as barren. Now there's some disagreement about this and long time ago, somebody wrote a book of cliffside lists, and they put my name on it, and I immediately found it to be a little bit uh, incomplete. 
There's some disagreement. Some people will say there are six barren women, and some people will say there are seven. They want to add Abimelech. Abimelech, I think, is fine to add his wife, but she is a Gentile, Philistine, as a matter of fact. And so some lists take it out. But it's very important to find all the barren women. Uh, i got to spell them all right. Sarah, as you know, Rebecca, right here. One Are the seven, uh, some, some will say miraculous births. Rachel, Samson's mother, the Nazaritic vow, why Christ is called Jesus of Nazareth is solved by the story of Samson's life, the Nazaritic vows. Uh, Hannah, Elizabeth, John the Baptist, right? And then Mary, that will get you seven. Very easily put, Abimelech, mother of Samuel. Very easily put Abimelech in there and you'll have eight. I'm going to include Abimelech uh, for obvious reasons, because Abimelech solves this story about the stew and what they were really talking about. You've been here. I've made the case, by the way, that, uh, um, well, I'll say that here in a minute. Anyway, Rebecca is on this list of these women who are barren, who have miraculous births, who are supernaturally affected by God. And she's going to have two sons, twins, and they will be nations. One will be the nation of Edom, that will be Esau. The other will be the nation of Israel, that will be Jacob. So whenever you see Esau and Jacob, you have to ask, is it talking about them individually or is it talking about the nation? So when I go to Romans 9, am I talking about the nation of Edom and the nation of Israel or am I talking about the person Esau and the person Jacob? That immediately helps you solve all of those kinds of questions. But she'll have two nations that come out of her essentially and they are going to struggle against each other and that's what they're doing today. They're going to do it tomorrow. All you have to do is follow where they've ended up. By the way, so you understand, twins always in the Bible have this nature, dual nature issue. In other words, we have a sinful nature and we have a godly nature if we are saved. And that is what's also being portrayed here. Esau is in the position of the fleshly nature. Jacob is in the position of the saved nature that struggles in each and every one of us. It's struggling right now. What are you doing right now? Yes, wishing you could leave and battling inside yourself. I can make a run for the buffet table. I could get the Kentucky Fried Chicken. I'm out of here. And you're battling, and I got that. We have cameras. We have security people outside hiding in the woods to protect my Kentucky Fried Chicken. The point is, is that uh, in a serious way, we all have a dual nature in us if we are saved. Listen, if you are unsaved, you have one nature. When you get saved, you have a war. Because now the Holy Spirit is, is battling you. And that's portrayed in twins. It's just part of what the scriptures do. 
So we have Rebecca will have twin sons, two nations struggling, Edom and Israel. One is red, hairy Esau. The other, the younger, held on to the heel of the red, hairy older. His name, Jacob. Esau is described as a cunning hunter. And that's critical information. There's only one other person in all of Scripture that is described as a cunning hunter. Except Esau. Who's the other guy that is described as a cunning hunter? His name is... Nimrod. That is why whenever you have a discussion of Esau, you are now in a discussion of Nimrod, who is an extraordinary figure in history. He is the founder, if you will, of the Babylonian paganism. He is the founder of Ishtar, Semiramis, Tammuz. All of those things that are still with us. All of them are still with us. So Nimrod in Genesis 10.9 also described as a cunning, wicked, mighty hunter against God. Okay, not he is, he is against God. And then there you're at the Tower of Babel. You have the intervention of God at the Tower of Babel. All of that is a Nimrod context. So we see this connection in Scripture between Esau and Nimrod. Jacob, a complete man, dwelling in tents. So to recap a little bit, uh, even more so, I'm trying to repeat it to bang it into you. I have a barren woman. I have two struggling nations, twins. I have the red hairy. I have the heel. Uh, what's the connection now between this red hairy description and the grasping of the heel? Because they're both identified by that. Whenever I talk about the heel in the Bible, what's the first verse I'm going to go to just by habit? Yeah, I'm going to Genesis 3.15. So I have to immediately say, why is he grabbing a hold of the heel of Esau? What does that have to do with, uh, with his name? And then I have this cunning hunter and the complete man dwelling in tents set side by side. And somehow all of that information has something to do with this event in the red stew and the selling of the birthright and this impending death of Esau. Remember, Esau says, I'm about to die. He is about to die. How old is he? Worst case scenario, he's in his 30s. Why is he about to die? Got the flu? No. Somebody is hunting him, and he's on the run. You've been here, you know who I think that is. I think it's got something to do with the other cunning hunter. In the Bible. Two men living at the same time, both described the same way by the Bible. That is not to be ignored. So I have this cooking of the red stew and the selling of a birthright, the impending or the imminent death of Esau, and then this oath, swear to me. I'm like, what is this? And Esau, it says, he hates, he despises his birthright. What does that mean? Now, immediately following this order, so that's my order, right? Got my order good. I got Rebecca. I've got the, the, all of this stuff coming into this meeting. And now what comes next? The Lord God himself appears to Isaac first time in 50 years. That's not a coincidence. And God does something when he appears. There's a famine and God appears to Isaac and God uh, reconfirms the Abrahamic covenant, which is God's oath to Abraham. 
And God repeats his oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and of course to Rebekah, Esau, and Jacob. They're all going to notice that, right? So obvious question now. What did the selling of the birthright have to do with the Abrahamic covenant? Because it has something to do with it. And what do we have that happens next? Does anybody know? Did you read ahead? Nobody ever reads ahead. It's because I threatened to give you tests, and I threatened to, and I never do it. Test on Friday. There's never a test on Friday. Can't even find me on Friday. We have this she is my sister thing comes next. She is my sister. That's so, I don't know what to call it. I would call it weird, but I know it's not. I know it's profound. That comes next. So again, your order, Rebecca, Esau, Harry, Jacob, Heel, Cunning, Killing, killer, complete man intense, stew, I'm tired, I'm going to die, give me the stew, sell me your birthright, okay, I hate my birthright, God appears, she is my, oh, Abrahamic covenant, she is my sister. You can't take any of that stuff out in order to understand this story about the stew and the birthright. It all follows perfectly in order. It all connects to each other. It all makes perfect sense when you know all the pieces. If you are going to try to solve the stew and Esau coming in from the field without all the rest of this, it's hopeless. You will not do it, and you haven't done it. So all those Skittles and Reese's peanut butter cups you accumulated in Sunday school class were given to you without merit. It's kind of like how we give trophies to everybody on the soccer teams now. Never raise your hand here, no matter what. But how many of you think you could pass the test now on Esau and Jacob? Only one, Robin. <laughs> oh, maybe that wasn't your hand. Who, who could have done that? <laughs> Good. That's my whole, my whole point of the introduction. All of this connects. And the she is my sister thing is coming next. It's a repeat of what happens in Genesis 20. I have a repeat in Genesis 20 to something that happened, or Genesis 26 repeats Genesis 20. And lots of people will say, well, it's the Bible has made a mistake. No, the Bible has not made a mistake. What happened in Genesis 20 has to happen in order for these other things to happen. And it's natural that it will be repeated in Genesis 26. As it happens to Abraham and Sarah here, and it happens to Isaac and Rebekah here. It's supposed to. I have Abimelech and... and uh, and so you understand that Abimelech is a dynastic uh, title. It's the same as saying Pharaoh or the same as saying, I don't know, Tsar, uh, if you will. Whatever, he is the head of this particular area in Scripture. And um, Isaac goes there after the Lord appears to him. So, Abimelech ends up telling people, all of his people, don't touch Isaac. Whatever you do, don't touch him. And don't touch his wife. 
Anyone who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Genesis 26:11. So whatever you do, don't touch Isaac, or I'm going to have to kill you as Abimelech. Tells his whole nation that. So what is it about Isaac that we can't touch him? Abimelech knew something about Isaac and Rebekah, just as the Abimelech of Genesis 20, different man, same title, learned that Abraham was a man under the special protection of God. And he says almost the exact same thing. Don't touch Abraham, don't touch Sarah, I have to kill everybody, except God says it to him. God says to the Abimelech of Genesis 20, if you touch Abraham or touch Sarah, I'm going to kill every single person here. I have to. Is God mean? No, he has to do it. Why does he have to do it? He's got to stop you, if you're Abimelech, from killing Abraham and taking Sarah as your wife. He's got to stop you. And not only has he got to stop you, he's got to stop everybody you know. Why is it that important? God is not the author of evil. He isn't capricious. He isn't a serial mass murderer. He's got to do this in order for what? Yes, he's got to protect his plan of salvation. He's protecting his plan of salvation. Who's it coming through? Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca. Don't touch them. They're under the special protection of God. This, this becomes key to understanding why Rebecca does what she does and why Jacob does what he does with respect to Isaac's blessing. Because that's coming on up pretty soon too, right? You know the story? You know that they're the, uh, Jacob, uh, uh, Rebecca has him put on hairy things on his arm and, and she makes the food that uh, Esau always makes Isaac and they try to get this done. Why are they doing that? Why does, why does Jacob do what he do, does with respect to Isaac's blessing? And last week I said that nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in Scripture does God condemn Jacob or Rebekah for what they did. In fact, they're honored. If you read the story and you say, poor Esau, you're in error. You read the story and you say, Rebekah has done something wrong, Jacob has done something wrong, you're in error. And the Abimelechs on both sides make that very, very clear. There's not a word that condemns Jacob. And Rebecca, obviously we're going to have to sift through quite a pile, aren't we? Just to understand what verse. It's not even on the board anymore. Romans 9, 12. That's what we're into. And 9, 21. And who else is involved in this, by the way? In order to understand Romans 9, you have this triumvirate, if you will, this triad of Jacob and Esau. And all I'm trying to do is get you through Jacob and Esau. And it'll take a month. Then I've got to do who? The Pharaoh. And then I have to do the potter and the clay. Now I have all those three pieces, and now when I put those three pieces together, I can understand Romans 9. See how easy it is? That's what we're doing. That's why Romans 9 is so badly butchered today, because nobody will take the time to do all of those things. Too hard of me. Okay. So we got quite a pile just to understand Romans 9. And so where do we start? And we start the same place we always start, Pinky. Where's that? I'm going to take this on. Where do I start? What's the first thing I do? 
First step. Step one. I got a big pile of stuff. What do I do? You can shout it out here and hardly anyone will make fun of you. First thing I do is what we always do, pinky. We plan to take over the world. No. First thing we always do is we find Christ in the Scripture. I have to find Christ. I have to first collect every Esau and Jacob. I'm looking for Christ. So I collect every Esau and Jacob passage and I assemble them into a big, huge mass. I have a big pile. Think jigsaw puzzle. I go and I get all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle and I spread them all over the stage up here. I've got a massive puzzle, all these pieces. And the first thing I do after I've got all my totality together and get it assembled as best I can, then I do the John 5.39 thing, if you will. Or first, I'm doing this. It's all part of this process. And that is, is I'm finding Jesus Christ in the puzzle. Because he is everywhere. He's, it's, his story is marinated in, in Christ. He's all through it. Where is he? Who, what portrays Christ in these passages, in these, these things that are so connected? Where is he in these passages? Let me ask you a question. Is he the cunning, wicked, hunting, killing guy? We eliminate that. That's not Christ. Is he the complete man dwelling in tents? Who is portraying Christ? Somebody is. Is Christ perhaps the blessing or the birthright that has to be protected at all costs? Who despises the blessing or the birthright? Who loves it in the story or in the actual event? Finding the portrait of Jesus Christ is fundamental. And again, these are actual, literal people who said and did these actual, literal things. And make no mistake, that's the case. But these things are, are the Old Testament, the purpose of the Old Testament is to portray, testify Jesus Christ. So, uh, how is that in this story? This is a story that, be, that ultimately is all about this birthright. Or this blessing. And there's two possibilities. Uh, everybody does the same thing with regard to the blessing. What do you assume that it is? Well, very good. Uh, 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 Dave in the front row because we don't really have anybody in the front row so the second row becomes the front row here so Dave in the front row said it's about salvation absolutely is most people don't answer that they always say the blessing or the birthright is about stuff who gets the stuff it's not the Bible doesn't is not a physically based book it is a spiritually based book you have to begin to think spiritually and worship me in spirit the birthright is the double portion of the inheritance given to the firstborn, the right of the firstborn to the double portion, right? So the first obvious question about that is, can I sell it? If I'm the firstborn, can I sell it to the secondborn? If I can, really? I mean, unless, unless Esau was convinced he was going to be dead in 20 minutes, which obviously he did, um, both parties are still going to have to agree. 
Remember I said last week, the evidence seems to be that Jacob was so well prepared, he had documents written up already, and all you had to do was sign here, Esau, close the book, I got it. Who else did he have to have? I had to have a notary public, right? Can't do anything without one of those guys. And I have witnesses. So Esau, Jacob is ready for this. How long has he been ready? Who's planned it with him? Clearly, this woman, Rebecca, deeply involved in this process. What are they trying to get out of Esau? Can this, can this be about the double portion in the sense the double portion is land or animals or money? Do you think this is about money? It's not about money. So what's it about? That question is very helpful because the, the, poor, the double portion is not the transfer of wealth. That is, God does not, you're, you're accumulating pieces of paper or shiny stones or pretty coins is not impressive to God. The double portion is not about the transfer of wealth. There's other elements to it. One of it is, one element is a transfer of power. If you are the firstborn, you get responsibility upon the death of the father. You get power and responsibility, authority. You have rank, your first rank. But there's more to it than that. It's the other aspects of the birthright that bring to focus all these other passages. The Abimelech passages explain the selling of the birthright because the firstborn is the one who becomes who in the family. He's not just the one of authority and power who has the transfer, if you will, of animals and land and all that stuff. He also is responsible for what? The firstborn is responsible for what? He is responsible. He is the priest of the family. He is responsible, if you want to think of it this way, for the salvation of the family. If you're a father, you're the priest of your family. If you have kids someday, you're going to stand before God and he's going to hold you accountable for the salvation of those kids. Did you do your job? And again, the Abimelech passages explain that. The firstborn is the one who becomes the priest. God says this to Pharaoh. This is how Pharaoh fits in. Remember, I have this triad. Romans 9. I have Pharaoh, Jacob, and Esau. It makes perfect sense because Jacob and Esau is about the transfer of the priesthood rank, if you will, the priesthood, the priest position in this family. The one who is responsible for the direction of the worship of God in this group, for lack of a better phrase. And what does God say to Pharaoh? He says to Pharaoh through Moses, Israel is my son. Which one is Israel here? Jacob is Israel. Becomes a change, his name's changed to Israel. Israel is my firstborn. My son. What's he saying to Pharaoh? 
Pharaoh knows immediately what the firstborn means. It means Israel is my nation of what? The Bible even tells you. Israel is my priests. Israel is the true priest of the true God. And what was Israel? What did, what did Moses say to the Pharaoh? Let them go. We've got to let the priests of God, the firstborn, you can substitute the word firstborn with the word priest. Let the firstborn, his son, you can substitute all of that and say, let the priests of God go and do what? Worship. Going to be gone for three days. Aren't you a little bit, the visitor comes up with the right answer? Is that, never mind. <laughs> Did you did you hear what what Bill the cow said? He said the visitor doesn't know the rules. The rules are you never answer any question and you never raise your hand at any time. But but <laughs> okay. Anyway, Israel was to journey three days and three nights. By the way, sign of Jonah: three days, three nights into the wilderness, get away from the Pharaoh and the nation of priests, the nation of firstborn. The, 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 the firstborn son of God, this nation, was to worship God, Exodus 5, 1 through 3. Again, this is God's firstborn, his priesthood. And that's why this rejection of God at Matthew 12 is so important. So those are the key words or the phrases in this story of Jacob and Esau. Along with, look, I am about to die. Swear an oath. Esau hates his birthright. He hates the priesthood element of that birthright. Does he want the stuff? Does he want the power? He's all for that. He does not want the priesthood element. Jacob and Rebekah do everything they can to get what? The priesthood element. Why are they doing that? There's two reasons you become coached. you know what they are? Number one, your kid is on the team, and you want him to play shortstop and pitch every game. That's not a good reason. The real reason that you can become coach is to stop that guy from being coach. Yes, sir. It is a bloodline issue, absolutely. But both of them have the same blood. Obviously, does Esau... Marry a Jewish woman. Doesn't appear that he does. We'll get to that here pretty soon. Does? Uh, uh, clearly, Jacob did. How many? <laughs> That's another story. Okay, but he, he is Israel. And we'll have to, we'll have to re- wrestle with all of that. But the point of it all is, is I got these key phrases. Let me go over them again. I'm about to die. Look, I'm about to die. Jacob responds, then swear an oath. Give up your priesthood. He hates it anyway. He hated his birthright. Despised it. So which part of the birthright becomes the most obvious of the obvious questions? The motive is not money, even though the overwhelming number of consensus, if you will, of Bible commentators have concluded that Jacob and Rebekah conspired to cheat Esau out of money. 
And you really see that, by the way, in anti-Semitism. They bring up Jacob all the time. He's a thief. He's a deceiver. He's all about trying to steal a greedy little Jacob. And that is not what this story is about. It's not even close. It's absolutely the, the opposite of that. They have this conspiracy to cheat Esau out of the wealth of his inheritance. And, and listen, again, let's go back to the physicality of this. Is Jacob capable of taking Esau? No. In fact, that becomes really clear as we go through the story. He has to run from him. He doesn't get anything. And I submit that that conclusion that is so overwhelming, uh, consensus is, is shallow thinking and is simply wrong. The Abimelech context is in direct opposition to such a conclusion, and we're going to get to that in a minute, as we'll see. And again, Rebecca and Jacob are never rebuked in Scripture for their motives. In fact, they're honored in Scripture for their motives. So whatever they were doing was the right thing to do. So in that story, who is in trouble? Esau. Isaac. Not Rebecca and Jacob. Rebecca and Jacob obviously had great concerns. Something is something huge is at stake here. We have got to stop Esau. We have got to stop Isaac from conveying, if you will, the priesthood element of this firstborn birthright onto Esau. We've got to stop Isaac. What's he thinking? And Rebecca was scared. What did she think was going to happen? If Isaac did this, they have to fool Isaac. They have to. And they both do it. And Rebecca says, let me die, essentially. If there's a curse, let me be cursed. I've got to save my husband from this, whatever he's about to do. Yes, ma'am. Yes, obviously he is. Alicia in the second row said that uh, something, this is for the Internet. Uh, those of you who know, uh, how many Internet downloads do we have? Yes, we have lots of them, and they control us now. And we have to be really afraid of them, so we have to kind of include them so they don't revolt, and that's what I'm doing now. <coughs> Felicia in the second row, which is really Felicia in the first row, uh, said that obviously Esau is not interested in this priesthood aspect. And if it's conveyed upon him and he is rejecting it, what is the consequences to both Isaac and Esau for that? What will God do? What has he told the, what does he just say to the Abimelechs? Don't touch Abraham and Sarah. All right, I gotta kill every one of you because I'm going to protect this as much as I have to protect it. I'm required. It is, if he doesn't protect it, then he isn't good. This is the salvation system, if you will. This is the, this is the lineage of salvation. This is his plan. This is how you are saved. All of us are saved ultimately through these kinds of things. This is how Christ comes, the method that God uses. And Rebecca and Jacob had great concerns, and they raised those concerns. They had to among themselves, and they knew that something great is at stake. 
Esau is a cunning hunter, the same as Nimrod. Essentially the same language, the same description that is given of Nimrod is given of Esau. Is that good? No. And Jacob, on the other hand, is a complete man, the Bible says. What is a complete man in the eyes of God? Versus an incomplete man. One is a wicked, cunning killer. The other is a complete man. Which is the opposite of a cunning hunter. By the way, why would Esau hunt? What's his family? What's the family business? Just as a tangent here because I have time. Yes. What do we got? Livestock. How much livestock are we going to have? We got a lot. We soon have so much we can't even count them all. So why is Esau hunting? What's that? Yes, and the other key question is he's described exactly as Nimrod, and Nimrod doesn't hunt animals. Nimrod's a killer of human beings. You don't usually say cunning when you're hunting animals. You usually say cunning when you're hunting humans. So now we get lots of questions that are going to come next week, aren't they? What was he doing? His family business is hurting, ranching, for lack of a better term. Esau was a cunning hunter, same as Nimrod. Doesn't seem to fit. So what is actually being said? And why didn't Esau eat what everyone else ate? It says Esau ate game. But he doesn't. And Isaac loved him because he was a cunning hunter. By the way, while he's out being a cunning hunter, who's running the business? The complete man is. There's another aside. Isn't it interesting that Esau is certain, he's absolutely positive that whatever he has just done, and he's running for his life, and you know what I think here, connects back to Nimrod. Whatever he has just done, he is he's on his last legs. He's being chased himself. He probably is wounded. If not, he's, he's certainly exhausted. And he thinks he's going to be killed. Probably running to where he can defend uh, his area where he may have some people on his behalf. And Jacob says, transfer your birthright. Do it. Sign here. I've been carrying my book around now for a while waiting. Mom and I have decided this ever comes up because we know what kind of dangerous things you're doing, baby. And we got to get this birthright transferred. Why does he have to have the birthright transferred, especially if Esau is going to be killed? Does that make any sense? Just let him get killed. But he says, no, i got to transfer it. Go. We got, we're running out of time, though. Well, uh, Dave has leaped to the end times, which is an appropriate thing to do because this is the nation of Israel. But uh, we'll see uh, how far we get to go with that in the weeks to come. Let me try to finish this before I got four people drooling, six people fainted, and three have left. So I got to go. Isaac at Genesis 27 is likewise certain that he's going to die soon. By the way, he's not going to die. 
He says, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Esau, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Neither one of them died. Both of them were wrong. Rebecca and Jacob did all this stuff. The guy didn't die anyway. So Isaac was wrong. That makes me wonder if Rebecca wasn't slipping him some uh, glycol, lime jello. You know, I'm kidding. Trying to get this out of the way. That's not, that did not happen. There was no antifreeze in the jello at Genesis 27. That's a joke. Please don't write me. I'm getting, I'm getting more hate mail than I can read. <laughs> Esau at Genesis 27 is well aware of the benefit of Isaac's blessing. We'll get to that next week or the week after where we'll discuss all that. You can read ahead so you can pass the test. And it's, it's certain that Isaac is going to convey the blessing on Esau. They both know it. Esau knows it. Isaac knows it. Listen, as soon as this stew thing goes down and, I, and Esau doesn't die, what's he do? Hey, I just signed a book to Jacob. And I. Oops. What's he going to do now? Hey, Dad, we got to watch him. He's after the blessing. Why is he after the blessing? But he's aware of it. They're both aware of it. Isaac is very prepared for Rebecca to try something. He even gets it right. He knows they're trying something while they're trying it. How many people witness this this blessing thing that goes off between? I'm assuming you know the story and you all went to Sunday school. How many people witness this blessing between Isaac and Jacob disguised as Esau? You think it was just the two of them? How many people had to witness that? Who, who else witnessed that event? How many of them were there? And by the way, did they have a voting interest? Who did they want to be the priest? Anybody want vote for Esau for priest? Did they want the cunning hunter? Or they, did they want the complete man? What are the spiritual implications of the blessing? Which man hated the spiritual responsibilities? Which man valued them? Again, this is spiritual versus physical. Okay, we're going to conclude. That's my everybody's favorite word. I'm going to read the first Abimelech. If I can get going fast enough, I'll read the second Abimelech. Because that is your solution. Here's the answer key. This is how you get an A on the essay test on Friday. And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. There is the she is my sister thing. But God came to Abimelech and Abimelech, king of Gear sent and took Sarah. So in other words, Abraham and Sarah are going to see Abimelech. They're, they're, they have lots of reasons. They're confronted by Abimelech. And Abraham said, this is my sister Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? There's the nation element here. Did he not say to me, she is my sister? Because Abimelech knows that if he had affected in any way Sarah, 
Not only does he die, but his whole nation dies. Is that good? Yes. That's God being good. If he doesn't do it, what are the consequences? If he doesn't intervene on behalf of his own plan of salvation, what are the consequences? None are saved. Is that good? But Abimelech had had not come near her and said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And And she, even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hand, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. For I also withheld you. I stopped you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. Or if you want to say it this way, he is a priest of mine. How many does God have right now? Just this one. And he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all of his servants, told all these things in the hearing, and the men were very much afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done, because Abimelech knew this was a great sin. What, why? He just took the guy's wife. Why is that such a big deal? Who is she? Then Abimelech said to Abraham, what, what did you have in view that you have done this thing? And, and oh, I'll finish it next week. But uh, ultimately, Abimelech gives him sheep, oxen, male and female servants. He loads him up. Gave them to Abraham. He restored Sarah. And Abimelech said, see, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. And he said to Sarah, Behold, I have given you your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everyone. Thus she was rebuked. So Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants. And they bore children. What is this about? This is not about a guy going and stealing somebody else's better-looking wife. Second Abimelech, really fast. I'll start with it's the same thing. So Isaac dwelt in the same place, Gar. And the men of the place asked about his wife. And Isaac said, she is my sister. Here we go again. This is an Abimelech sandwich. I got Abimelechs on both sides doing the same thing. It's it's not good to be an Abimelech. She is my sister, for he was afraid to say she is my wife. Because if he had said she is my wife, then they might kill him to get his wife, right? You're going to kill this guy? Not possible. Why not? 
Yeah, God is protecting him because he is the priest of God. She, she is my sister, for he was afraid to say she is my wife because he thought lest the man of this place kill me for Rebekah because she is beautiful. Behold, now it came to pass when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw... And there was Isaac, showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Quite obviously, she is your wife. So how could you say, She is my sister, Isaac said to him, Because I said, Lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? It's almost the same story, but it's not. It's different people. But both Abimelechs figure out really fast who this is, and that you can't touch these people. You don't dare touch them. So Abimelech charges all of his people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And that solves the stew story. And once that solves the stew story, then that solves the Rebecca part of the stew story, and then that solves the Romans part of the stew story. Have everybody got that? Next week, we'll put it all together for you. Let's rise and get you out of here.